0: If you listen to any of my other shows, particularly iteration number 52, you know that earlier this year I had surgery on my eyes to correct a condition called strabismus. About a month ago, I got an email from a listener and a photographer who recently had a similar surgery, although I've since learned that her condition was much more dramatic than mine. I've never met anyone else with the same condition, let alone had the surgery to correct it. I responded to her email and asked if she'd be willing to have a conversation about how her experience compared to my own, specifically around how it shaped her approach to art both as a viewer and as a maker. I'm Jeffrey Sidoris. I'm talking to Joe MacBee, and this is In Between.
1: What are we going to talk about today, Jeffrey?
0: Well, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> A day about? in
1: my life? A
0: day or? in your life. Yeah. No, I want to talk about work versus the work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what kind of inspired the whole thing was the email that you sent me after listening to the episode about my surgery, because mm-hmm. you, you know, you mm-hmm. had the similar things. So maybe we can start there. Yeah. And, and talk yeah, about. Yeah, that was super powerful. Mm-hmm. Thank you
1: yeah well and and maybe more powerful for me because i'd just been through something similar but uh you know i wasn't i wasn't expecting it i had just gone been going reverse chronologically with your episodes and came home from a a day and uh put it on while i was eating my lunch Mm. and just had to had to pause it and stop eating and and cry and then Started up again, and then I, I because I was going reverse chronologically. You were talking about anticipating the surgery, mm-hmm. but I haven't. Which known was code anybody. for
0: being terrified. Of yeah, the ante- yeah. Well, yeah,
1: it's incredibly scary yeah. to have someone cutting your eyeballs. Yeah, um, and putting that. Yeah. Oh. So yeah, how because- how was
0: how was your strabismus different than mine? Because you. you you, well, it sounds like yours was much more severe.
1: Well, I don't know you and I haven't seen photographs of your strabismus or and now I wouldn't see it because I guess it's been cured. Um, I was born with mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was born uh, with hyperopia, rather severe hyperopia, which means that I was very farsighted. And one of the um, kind of co-symptoms or presentations with, with the farsightedness is to have this strabismus.
0: And was it both eyes for you, or no? It
1: was just it was just my right eye, which Uh um, is my non dominant eye. And one one of the consequences, and I don't know if you have this experience too, but one of the consequences of strabismus and definitely of the of the severe hyperopia is that my non dominant eye pretty much went offline. Yeah, like my brain stopped asking it for visual information. Same. And so that eye would. Just it it wasn't really doing much. And then if I if I tried to focus using both eyes, um, it would turn in quite dramatically. So I had um, I had a lot of I had almost no depth perception Mm -hmm. throughout my childhood and um, some double vision, but not I don't think I had the double vision like you did. And just in general, everything was blurry. Right. And I had just screaming headaches all the time, Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. especially by the end of the day. Like I would, I was one of those kids who would just put myself to bed at like 730 because I was just done. Right. I was just done.
0: I could not. Were you able to see at all without glasses? Could you read without glasses? Could you see anything? Yeah.
1: I was able to compensate for a time. Um, and my parents, my parents did, well, I I think my grandmother was really upset. My father's mother was really upset about the strabismus, Mm -hmm. um, and insisted that my parents take me to an eye doctor when I was maybe not even a toddler yet. And the eye doctor, you know, this was, this was the seventies and the eye doctor said, well, you know, she'll kind of let you know it, you'll know when it's time. Right. And, um, so this, this farsightedness runs in my father's side of the family. My father had it. My father's father had it. And, um, you know, they were tough, tough, you know, Jewish immigrant kind of folks. Mm -hmm. And, um, they just soldiered on. They were both, uh, voracious readers and, and I loved to read, but, um, I, I kind of compensated by memorizing things.
0: Mm. Um, so So you wouldn't have to read them again and again. Right. So I wouldn't have to read them
1: again. I I got a lot of, it was probably very good for me. I I got a lot of context clues. So I'd read part of what I needed to read. Mm -hmm. Um, I would scan for important things, but I, as I got older and, and as school demanded that I read more and more, I found that I would put what I needed to read on a music stand and step away from it until I could sort of focus on it. Mm Um, I always sat in the back of the classroom whenever possible, but it it wasn't until I started to get, you know, like hit in the face in PE class in the fifth grade. Um, and I started to really do poorly in school, which wasn't like me. I loved school. Um, and so my parents took me off for, um, some testing, mental age, testing, IQ kind of stuff to Mm -hmm. see what, what is going on. And I took the test, you know the results are immaterial, but the the uh the administrator said, Well, she's a bright girl, but have you noticed that she can't see very well? Um, and she uh avoids tasks that involve looking at something for extended periods of time. So it it, it was time. It was time. So at 10 I went and got um those very, very thick glasses. I've sent you a picture. Right. Um, They were uncomfortable, they were unflattering, they were um uh, ugly, yeah. I think probably well, the word y-
0: you said in in your email that your grandmother you used the word she was horrified. That, uh, that, that you, yeah. yeah. Is that yeah. I mean, was that communicated mm-hmm. to you in those terms?
1: It it was. I mean, it wasn't the only sort of body image thing that was communicated to me by my family, who I think were quite, you know, it was California at the time. People were vain. Um,
2: were? I, mean,
1: I don't know. I don't live in California anymore. Um, I, I live in a place with, uh, you know, realistic expectations, I think, about what people look like. But, sure. Um, so, yeah, no, my grandmother... My grandmother was really, really upset, but then she went up and went and died. So, um, you know, she probably would have championed or advocated for me and made sure that I had this taken care of much younger.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, my, my father was really busy. My mother was my mother. Um, yeah, it, it should have been taken care of earlier because it, it would have allowed me to, um, you know, participate more fully. Sure. My mother, for example, my mother was a, was something of a photographer. She had, um, she had worked in photography and, and occasionally would get the camera out, um, to make photos of me. And, um, she would have me close my eyes before the photo and, and then have them open, have me open them right before she would Mm -hmm. snap the shutter. So they they didn't have a chance to move kind of thing. They didn't have a chance to cross because I wasn't focusing or she would, you know, make photos in profile or um you know have me look down or look to one direction or the other kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a really strong awareness.
0: How did it affect outwardly how you experienced the world
1: so it's it's interesting about that i um I have some of these really early memories of light, like the quality of light, and Um, being really interested in light. And I, I talked with my mother some years ago, I said, I remember this light and I described it to her like this quality of light. And, and I described it to her and she said, Oh, that was, that was our, our place in Sausalito. The light is, is exactly how you describe it. And she said, but you were six months old when we moved away from there. Hmm. Well, I don't know. And then I went on to describe the light in the next place we lived, um, which was up on the hill um with a view out toward the the bay, out toward San Francisco. And I remember the fog, and I remember how the fog would burn off. And I, I just remember how the light would change as that happened. And we had these big picture windows that that looked south. And I think that because I wasn't able to really focus on details. I was very captivated by light. And then as I got um, exposed to more art, I was very drawn to bold colors, geometric shapes, things that were I mean, I think that's pretty normal for kids because the eyes come online in in a certain way, you don't have that precise, detailed focus early on. But I, I, I think it you know, went six or 12 months uh, babies are able to focus, but I never was. So I was really drawn to, to very, uh, you know, bold graphic kind of elements. Um, and because I had really poor depth perception, everything in my world flattened into two dimensions. Sure. And so now as, as an artist, um, you know, until my eye surgery and, and, and maybe since in the last year, i'm I'm still kind of recreating that aesthetic that way that I perceive the world even all these years later, that I feel like I flatten that that I struggle to um incorporate depth into my work mm-hmm. um, because that's just not how i that's not how I engage with what I see
0: well, you shoot i mean you shoot pretty wide. Which, I do. which yeah. doesn't mm. tend to flatten things out. I mean, I'm surprised that given how you experience perspective and depth perception that you don't shoot longer so that it do- you do end up getting that compression and that flattening out.
1: Well, that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that. I'm really uncomfortable with long lenses. Hmm. Um, the longest I have is like an 80, like an 80 millimeter equivalent, mm-hmm. maybe 80, mm-hmm. 85 kind of portrait lens which I bring out if I have to, like if I'm, if I know I'm going to need to make people beautiful, um, I'll get that lens out, but right. yeah, I, I don't know. That'd be a really interesting exercise for me after the eye surgery to go out with, with
0: a longer lens. It might be completely shocking to, to see how that perspective gets kind of compressed and, and flattened out. It might be uncomfortable, you know?
1: It might be. That's, that would be good though.
0: Once you started to, I mean, you're, you're getting a little older now and and starting to make decisions around the kind of art that you respond to.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Did your vision still affect some of those choices and responses? Because I know it did for me. It, it It's one of the reasons that I've been drawn to, you know, Rauschenberg and Rothko in mm-hmm. particular, because mm-hmm. there was mm-hmm. there was nothing I had to focus on. I could just experience mm-hmm. color you know, or Helen Frankenthal or or de Kooning or some of the the big people that, that for whom detail was not a prerequisite.
1: Yeah. And I had the exact same experience. Um, and I don't know if we were just because we both grew up in California at the same time, if we were exposed to the same traveling exhibitions Mm -hmm. or if it really is a function of us, of us having this kind of compromised, um, visual experience. Um, uh, absolutely. I mean, my, I, um, I was always drawn to abstract expressionism Um, from a really young age. I would have said, you know, at three or four, I could have named Kandinsky and Clay probably Mm. as my favorite artists. Um, And uh, I think
0: Dr. Seuss was in my was in my top.
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Shel (laughs) Silverstein. Mm -hmm. What's what is Uh, the first mm -hmm. what's the first piece of art or, or exhibit that you remember?
1: Well, we had a lot of art in our home
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we had a lot um by uh an American artist living in France named Johnny Friedlander, who I think died um uh, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um so I remember those well. In fact, I'm looking at one of them right now that I have in my living room. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're abstract lithographs. Um but a well-known artist. Let me think.
0: I had a very different experience. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I think the first thing I remember was uh, the touring... Um, you're
1: going to say Common, aren't you? I am.
0: Yeah, at LACMA.
1: Uh-huh. I saw it in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, probably, the you know, the same time. Uh, what year was that?
0: Oh, God. I don't know. It was school. It was a school was field school. trip. So it must have been... Oh gosh. I'm
1: in you know like
0: what? eighty? Um you know what? I don't know. Uh the King internet. LACMA. Let's see. No. Oh, uh 1978.
1: 78, okay.
0: Yeah. So that's that's what it would have been. It would,
1: 1978,
0: so I was 1978. I was uh wait, what would I have been? Six uh, eleven. Oh, my God, you're old. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <laughs> oh, it's been a while since I've been reminded of that in a podcast. So thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah so that was th- that that was the first thing. That a huge thing. impression on me. I mean, huge. I can
1: remember. I remember it very vividly. Yeah. Um, But I, I don't know that I thought of, other than it taking place at an art museum, I don't know that I thought of it as art. Because for me, art was something... That happened uh, in a frame on a wall or mm. as a sculpture. I thought I saw it more as like artifacts. Yes,
0: yeah. I, I I was um, late but- to the game in in art. I I mean we had you know, paintings, yes, but they mm-hmm. were you know seascapes or buildings that you would probably now find in a thrift shop or goodwill or something. They weren't. It was couch art, you know. I have friends who collect that. Yeah, so. no, I mean no disrespect because now it's coming back, but it, <laughs> I I didn't know anybody by name until probably high school,
2: mm-hmm. you know, because
0: mm-hmm. I the the other than. Disney animators and uh-huh. you know Frank Frazetta and Boris Vallejo and and you know sort of sci-fi illustrators but in terms of I don't of,
1: think you should discount that. I no, mean No,
0: I'm not. I'm not at all, but but there are those who who
1: You've read Dan Winters?
0: Absolutely. Uh and he's
1: he's going to say they they belong on the same
0: and they do. level but at the time mm-hmm. they were they were genre artists and they were not mm-hmm. considered art with a capital A. Mhm. Even though they influenced and affected, you know, culturally, uh, I think, just as much as as some of the big people who we would we would kind of refer to now. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't know any, you know, I didn't know. De Kooning or Pollock or I Mm -hmm. mean, maybe Monet, Van Gogh, Picasso. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, Did you see
1: that exhibition of the impressionists that that went through in the early 80s? Because that's the one that really made a huge impression on me. Um not that I remember. I think I think that I responded to it because it gave me uh, you know, as I said, I was really drawn to the as you were, to the color field artists. Mm-hmm. And and my mother always liked impressionist art. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really grow up with any of it in my, my landscape, mm-hmm. my habitat, but, um, there was a exhibition in San Francisco. I want to say, I feel like it was the year that, um, Jenny, what's your number? Eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine was on. Yeah, Cause I have, I just have this memory. I, maybe I've conflated to memories, but I have this memory of like us singing that song on the bus to go see the impressionists, And so I felt, I mean, at that point I was wearing glasses, but I felt like, and I, and I should say the glasses only did so much. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like all of a sudden I had this 2020 vision. No, all of a sudden I could read, but I still had headaches. I still had poor depth perception. I was still getting hit in the face with balls and PE, you know, (laughs) the whole story, but um, just the back to the art. (laughs) uh i was so 1981 I was so, by the way thank you yeah it was 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 the the jenny the, yeah Tommy Tutone. Okay. two-tone yeah so maybe it was maybe maybe i was 10 years old and maybe i hadn't gotten glasses yet but i remember the i remember that i just remember not wanting to get back on the bus i remember wanting to live with that work I remember in particular the Georges Seurat, the the afternoon on the island of the Grand Jatte or whatever it mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, the classic one with the woman with the bustle. Yeah, and sure, the, sure, the, sure. The point, the point, the pointalism. yeah, the, yeah. It's and it's massive. I don't know if you've seen it in person and that might not have even been there. But in my mind, like that's how I remember seeing Seurat and seeing like that approach to uh, representation. Mm
0: hmm. Interesting that you would pick that out because it's arguably a lot more detailed than the other things that you've mentioned.
1: Well, and I think it made such an impression because I never would be able to do that. I Mm -hmm. never would. I mean, to this day, I don't know if I could do that. I can certainly see well enough to do it now. But um, at the time, I mean, there was just no way. So I was fascinated with it for that reason. Maybe I wasn't I was raised with an appreciation for art and music, Mm -hmm. but um and my, you know, my grandfather thought everything that I did was just beautiful. Um, and he was an artist, my father's father. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but he died when I was quite young and I didn't have, um, you know, professional art or the artist's life or any of that, or even professional music modeled for me. And it was, it was never something I Thought of, I thought of art as something you did in school or something you did in your room on your own. Um, mm-hmm. And then something you went to the museum and looked at or the gallery and you looked at. And so. Um,
0: but it sounds like it was, you were surrounded by it. You had said earlier that.
1: By, sure, I was surrounded yeah. by it. But it came as it, it, I mean, it came as a surprise to me when I left home and double majored in math and Russian um and right. <laughs> devoted myself to that to the best of my ability. okay
0: wait okay so now you're you're at the at the present uh-huh. yeah
2: i'm in the present
0: you're a photographer and a linguist how did and a linguist uh-huh. wh- where did russian and math how well, did that fit into the mix
1: well yeah so this is my point exactly like i i didn't know i was an artist i didn't right. even know i was creative I knew that I loved to sing, I loved to dance, I loved um I loved art, but so um, it
0: naturally makes sense to major in Russian. Absolutely. And math. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, so I don't have um I was I was just uh, encouraged to be serious mm-hmm. about the things.
0: By whom? By family? By friends? By
1: family. Yeah, yeah. and those I was I never thought of myself as like I never got a lot of positive feedback for the things I made in art class. Mm-hmm. And I, I look at them now and I I like I came across my sculptures that I made in, you know, eighth grade or something in a painting I made in the seventh. And, you know, I understand why I probably didn't get any positive feedback or win any awards. Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't been putting in the miles. Like a lot of kids, you know, they they're drawing constantly, they're tracing, sure. they're um studying. And, um, you know, I hadn't been doing that, um, but I had been training my eye in other ways. And, um, so I went off to college and, uh, was really struggling, um, academically. Wait, and back um, up for one sec, if you yeah. don't mind.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did your vision, did your strabismus, did that affect how your parents saw your possibility in terms of art?
1: Oh, hmm. I think that my parents never considered my possibility in terms of art. In fact, Hmm. if we fast forward from the time I left home to several years later, when I had, by this time I had discovered photography and had abandoned all quote unquote serious pursuits, Mm -hmm. Um, I came home uh, for a visit triumphant, jubilant, because I had gotten a full scholarship to art school. Still, never having taken an art history class, never taken, never majoring in art, nothing. So, you know, I had done this all by myself, and I came home, and they said, "You know, what do you think you're doing? You're not going to, not going to go to, you know, blankety blank art school." Um, Did they really know, say go-to? blankety blank? Um, I don't know what they said. <laughs> they might have.
0: Were they cartoon
1: characters, care. your parents? <laughs> 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 I wish. <laughs> oh my gosh, I wish. Um, you no, know, my parents. My parents my parents were, um, my parents are very formal, very serious people. And, um, no child of theirs was going to become an artist. Was But you method- had an
0: artist in the family, did you not?
1: My grandfather was an artist. That's right. Um, so how, how was it, his and,
0: work negated?
1: Well, he, um, he taught drafting. Mm. He had gone to, school, and he taught drafting. And then, you know, when he, in his retirement, which was lengthy because he lived to be almost a hundred, wow, uh, he painted watercolors. And I'm looking at one of his watercolors of Tiburon right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, uh,
1: and so I grew up with his his work around me too. But, but your parents uh,
0: didn't see the value in that. No, somehow,
1: no, they saw it. I mean, my parents were very creative people, but they saw it as like a hobby. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my father, my father came of age in the Depression um, and had wanted to be an academic and and uh, study comparative literature. And you know, he was the only child of Jewish immigrants. And of course, this was pre-World War II, but there was a lot of anti-Semitism. And, you know, it's like we haven't come this far for you to, you know, be an academic or for you to be a creative type. Right you're going to med school and becoming a doctor. So hmm. I think, you know, there was a little bit of and he, and he also, you know, he, he was a beautiful singer and he sang all his life and it was music that brought my parents together. It was how they met, but that was always something you kind of did on the side. Like hmm. it's lovely to be an artist, but that's not yeah, what you on the weekends. do with your life. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. on the weekends. Exactly. So that was the message I got, whether that was what they meant to tell me, I don't know, but that was my interpretation of their message. And you know, in reading Art and Fear and in reading The War of Art, I feel like I had probably um internalized a lot of messages from society and from my parents, but also used their you know, I did kind of spring it on them, but I used their reaction as an excuse to to hit the eject button. Like, oh, Well, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe I shouldn't go to art school. Maybe Mm. I don't know what it takes. Maybe, maybe, you know, the imposter syndrome stuff that I had, that I had been deaf to because I didn't know. I just like, literally, I just stumbled into a dark room one day. Like I had no, and it was not a deliberate thing. Like. Um, you know, maybe this Russian and math thing isn't for me. Maybe I'm really a photographer. No, it wasn't like that. It was just literally stumbling into a dark room, falling in love with it and devoting the next 18 months to it or 16 months until I got this scholarship. And then it was like, it was like a switch had flipped. And yes, I've talked with my therapist about this. It was like a switch had flipped, um, you know, like all that imposter syndrome noise just came in like, mm. Oh, well, my parents are, you know, they're adults and they're smart people. Right. And
0: they became the voice of resistance for you.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I never took another photograph until two and a half, three years ago.
0: And that was, but now when was your surgery?
1: Uh, my surgery was uh, a little over a year ago at okay. the end of last, uh, last summer of last year. And, um, so my surgery was very different from yours because the, the strabismus wasn't the focus of, pardon the pun, the focus of the, the correction. What they were hmm. correcting was the, the extreme farsightedness. And as a, a happy byproduct, the strabismus the, would be corrected as well. Um, so were, you, were so, you getting
0: to a point where glasses technology wasn't able to correct for it? Like you were getting to the, to the limits of what could... Passed, yeah, I had already passed. Yeah, I had already passed Wow. The wow. And,
1: um, my my ophthalmologist after my surgery said, you know, I don't even know how you were functioning like you were really. Yeah, I don't I don't know how you were doing as much as you were able to do. Um, and, you know, I didn't it should have been really obvious to me, but I wasn't connecting the migraines and the headaches to my vision. Mm-hmm. And so I had no expectation that those would go away with the surgery. And that and they immediately went away, even after I had my first eye done
0: um, oh, so you had them done separately.
1: I had them done separately. Ah, uh, okay. They did the dominant eye first, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I thought, well, that seems dumb. Shouldn't you practice on the non-dominant eye and right. like, try that one out first? How but long
0: between surgeries on the two? It was
1: it was a week. Um, oh, okay. It typically, is two weeks, but um, I said, you know, hey, can we do this a little faster? So um, I had them a week apart, and. I I'm either like missing the gene for fear. Like the guy who climbs, who free climbs, what's his name? Um,
0: Oh, that was just in the, the free solo movie.
1: Yes. Um, I I'm kidding. I I'm not missing that gene. Cause I do experience fear normally, but like, I was pretty confident going in. I, I didn't have the same.
0: Oh my God. I was terrified.
1: Yeah, I didn't. I was so ready. I was so ready because I was miserable. I was so constrained by my vision. Mm. Um, And I, I wasn't able to, you know, I was concerned that as a, as an artist, that, that I wasn't going to be able to, to do the things. And as I've revealed to you, um, I mean, I have been very late to learning how to, um, to process my images, my digital Mm -hmm. images. Mm -hmm. Um, I think because I couldn't sit at the computer, I couldn't look at a computer for more than 10 or 15 minutes. I couldn't read the magazines. I couldn't read the manuals, um, Like I literally could not read them without getting a headache. So, you know, the pleasure for me was the process of going out with the camera in my hand and, you know, capturing the light falling on
0: things. I mean, that
1: really, at that, until my eye surgery, I felt like that was all I was doing. I was taking, I was, I was documenting light.
0: So I'll ask you the same question you mm -hmm. asked me. How, how has your work changed? post-surgery, if at all?
1: Well, I think it's uh, at first, I'm not sure it did. I mean, Mm -hmm. you've seen you've seen the project that I did um, about, I guess, two months after my surgeries. I had a little portfolio of things called new eyes. And it was the first images I took after my surgery when I had only one eye done and was just pointing my camera, not even sure. I was just drawn to like shapes because it took me, it took me a few months for my eyes to come fully online for my brain. I still think my brain is adapting, but, um, yeah, it was a while before, before my brain and eyes learned to perceive harmoniously, Mm
2: -hmm. but
1: yeah, so I, I had an opportunity to go to the Pine Mountain Settlement School, which is a magical place in deep in the mountains of Kentucky's Appalachia. And, um, it's, uh, you know, built by Italian stonemasons in this this setting with the, the hills all around and the light kind of, you know, comes in um, bouncing off of those hills and into the valley. So I was there for a, a weekend, long weekend workshop and just kind of like devoured the place in a sense. Like I just could not I could not make enough photographs. Right. I, I was insatiable with it. So I feel like that was the first where I was I was starting to make photographs that were about something instead of of something, right? And, and but they're I feel still
0: like, very much about the light. I mean, I'm looking through they're them now, still and very, very much about the light. Yeah. You are you, the light is still the star of the show in, yeah. in many of the photographs here.
1: But I feel like that was the first, the first time where I felt like my work could be more about than of, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's been the gift that this eye surgery has. And it could just be I'm maturing as an artist, but that that I feel like my work now is increasingly about things and less of things. And I'm less concerned about having, being inspired by the light and more inspired by the ideas.
0: Um, what was the, the last project before your surgery? Pine Mountain is the first. What uh-huh. came directly before Pine Mountain?
1: Mm. Cuba might be the thing that. Because Cuba was about six months before my eye surgery. So my photographs from Cuba might be the best representation of what I was doing right before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But that wasn't really a project. That was just, you know, me in Cuba with a friend. Right. And I occasionally made some photographs.
0: If I'm looking at these, and I hope this doesn't come out wrong, the, the pictures are flatter.
2: Mm-hmm. Which ones?
0: Cuba. The Cuba pictures. Uh-huh. Yeah. They, oh, they yeah. feel like there's there's less... Dynamic range. There's less mm-hmm. between the light and the dark. Where th- th- they are, they are about, they are about the place versus the the pine mountains shots feel more like about. They are about the light. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't mean that offensively at all. They're just an observation.
1: It, oh yeah, I'm not offended by that. Um, well, and and it's really hard to compare the light in Cuba in December yeah, sure, to sure. the light in Kentucky, the mountains of Kentucky in October, but. Um, some of it, too, could be the film simulation. So for at Pine Mountain, I probably was running classic Chrome mm-hmm. on my Fuji. And then in Cuba, I was just in standard. And I have done zero processing to either of those photographs, either of those bodies. They're they're 100% straight out of camera.
0: And, and that is perfectly OK, regardless of what you read online.
1: Right. Thank you. Yes, we've had that conversation. That was very liberating, by yeah. the way, just to hear that from you, because I know that you, you know, you are a student of the things. Right. Uh, And to me, that um, sometimes goes along with someone who takes advantage of a lot of the processing opportunities. I have not, I'm not acquainted with your, your photography
0: work. There's not a lot to be acquainted with really. And Mm -hmm. most of the time.
1: You're depriving the world.
0: eh, I don't know about that. If, if I'm not shooting JPEG, Mm -hmm. if I, if I am shooting raw, I will bring the raw files into capture one and apply some sort of preset, some mm-hmm. sort of, uh, the, the film styles that I've got are terrific, but I, you know, I use three or four of them and then I'll make local adjustments, play with a curve adjustment mm-hmm. and that's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I spend more than a minute or two on a photograph, that's a rarity. You know, and, Do you think that that relates
1: to your vision too?
0: Or your eyes? I don't think so, because for a while I was I was deep into compositing. Okay. I mean, I've been using Photoshop since version three and it was for a long time my go to. I would I would bring everything into Photoshop. And so you're not
1: screen averse and you're not.
0: No, Uh no. But I got to a point where I just all of that seemed like it wasn't there was no cohesive narrative to it. There was no reason for it. It was just because I could.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Whereas somebody like Gregory Crudson,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: who will combine multiple shots into one, but there's a reason behind it and it doesn't look like he did. You know, it's why I like the movies of David Fincher. Fincher uses CG in all kinds of ways, but you don't notice it.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You don't look at a David Fincher movie and go, wow, that was some great CG. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. He keeps it very subtle and it, and it has to serve the story. And I found that with my own compositing work, it was, it was because I could, or, you know, look how clever this is, but it wasn't really moving the image forward in that way. Now I've, I've been noodling on a new body at work for a long time that will need to be composited, but it will lean more toward that Crudson Fincher vein. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I look forward to seeing that.
0: Thanks. Me too. Yeah. If it ever, Mm -hmm. if it ever happens.
1: You excited about it? Like I get really jazzed when I think about future projects.
0: Yes. I mean, I'm excited about doing the work Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and the hardest thing, I don't know about the hardest, but one of the hard things for me to let go of is how it will be received by others, regardless of how it's received by me.
1: Well, I know you're very concerned with audience, but that's, a, I'm saying that in a neutral way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, kind of, I
0: want I, I to connect with them. I want to connect okay. with an audience.
1: But I, I think too, like you, you are so, um, you're so interested in process and I think you derive a lot of pleasure from process. That's my impression of you. Yeah. That I think if you found, um, ways to motivate yourself to be in that process more, um, that you really make a lot of inroads quickly. I think you'd get moving on some of these projects more quickly than you even realize. And, um, that that would feel really good. And whether you, you know, commit to a week of posting every day or once a week for a month or something, just like find a way to have accountability to, to an audience or not to an audience, but certainly to yourself, Mm -hmm. like to get, to get moving. And, and, and I think if you want to approach it from, gee, I wonder what these new eyes can do, um, you know, do it that way. Like, you know, you and I are still trying to figure out what what our post-surgery eye surgery art is going to look like.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's exciting. Fair, like, it, it is exciting. Do it. Yeah. do it. Yeah.
1: Do it already. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, what? <laughs> Focus. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm curious to see what it looks like, and I, you know, the the last several months have been sort of retooling what I expect from myself and what I want to focus on moving forward, and and <laughs> you know, we'll we'll see how it how it shakes out. I'm I'm, you know, I'm you know, several months post surgery, and I still wake up every morning and go look in the mirror to make sure they're straight.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: You yeah, or I'll uh, ask
0: Adrian. Are I they still totally straight? I totally understand. Yeah. <laughs> she <laughs> said yes, they're still straight. Stop. <laughs> yes.
1: But how's is, how's is that affecting your identity too? I mean, do you feel do you feel d- different?
0: Yeah, I do. In fact, one of the f- I have a friend who um and I I've spoken about her many times. She's a, a paper conservator at the National Gallery and oh, she's yeah.
1: mm-hmm.
0: very intimidating to me. And I I have found that pre-surgery i wouldn't look her in the eye i mm. would i would be off axis or i would be looking at something else whenever we would have a conversation and the last couple times we've had in-person conversations and and because she is she is one of those people who locks eyes when she's talking to you mm. like you, you she's a very attentive listener and she's lovely to have a conversation with and so i have found that 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 Post-surgery, I now am more locked into in-person conversations. Even talking to Adrian, I'm more engaged and and straight on instead of having to try and compensate so you don't see what I did see. Mm-hmm. You don't see all that I did see. Mm-hmm. You know, So I think that's been the biggest thing. And I think in terms of the work that I do, it's opened up the possibility and the opportunity to have in-person conversations where I can feel like I'm in the moment and present in the conversation, not wondering or worrying about how you see me sitting across from me.
1: Do you think? Do you think it's affecting your um, relationship with podcasting? Does it want to? Make I think. You change it, yeah, I think it, it will. Moving time forward. you devote to it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean the, the 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 next show that I'm launching in 2020 is all in person. Mm-hmm. it's not going to be Skype. It's not going to be remote. It's going, well, I mean, I say that it's not going to, be the intention is not to do it remotely. The intention is to have all of these conversations in person. Uh, and will
1: they be on YouTube kind of in person or will they still just no, be audio? They'll,
0: they'll still just be audio. My, uh-huh.
1: but you'll have them. I see. You'll have them in person.
0: Yeah. My, huh. my love affair with audio is deep. I mean, I, uh-huh. I grew up Listening to radio and listening to DJs who played what they want and had opinions and beliefs and thoughts and it wasn't a playlist culture then it was it was freeform radio and and you listened to these guys and girls because of who they were and because of what their tastes were and what they thought about things you know and they're influencers absolutely before mm-hmm. there were influencers mm-hmm. yeah I mean you're listening to to Joe Benson and, and Meg Griffin and, and, you know, all of these people that, that kind of affected not only the music, but they, you know, they were newscasters, they were social commentary, they were, they were all of that stuff. And there's a different quality to a conversation that happens in person than does over Skype, uh, over the phone, whatever it is. And I want to explore that as a new body of work. No.
1: Do you think do you think that it's the since the eye surgery, you'll uh, re your ambition level
0: with regard to podcasting or just in general,
1: in general, you, like like what is possible for you? I think and, so. If, in your own
0: mind. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. on on a on a in a large degree, I've hidden behind Skype and, you know, podcasting remotely because I've been uncomfortable face to face, especially with strangers. I mean, people that I know and, and people that have been in my life for, for a long time, you know, you feel like those people are more forgiving. Mm-hmm. But having conversations with strangers, especially lengthy conversations where where you have time to sit and look at me and realize that something's off, <laughs> something's not right about this guy, you know, visually speaking. Um mm-hmm. I think that has changed dramatically and I think my desire to to explore that is 100% a result of of the success of the surgery. Mhm. You know. I mean it, it is it is like getting a new pair of eyes. It is like getting you know a, a a new sort of you know not to be overly dramatic but a new lease on life and my my surgeon when I, I mean it, I've told this story. I was terrified going in. I I was ready to pull the plug. I was ready mm-hmm. to go home. I, forget it. I'm not going to do this. I'm terrified. And, you know, I, like I said, I've told this before where she knelt down beside me and she said, don't worry, I'm going to change your life. Mm-hmm. And she did. Mm-hmm. 100%. You know, so th- to to anyone who is out there who is listening, and I've gotten such wonderful email since talking about the surgery publicly from people who have been in similar conditions to ours, similar situations to ours where their their either their quality of their vision or the strabismus that they have have uh, endured has gotten to a point where they can no longer endure it and mm-hmm. to hear that it that it can change that it will change um the responses have, have been incredible and and I would say to any of you who are listening who if you have the ability to change it yes it's terrifying but it is so incredibly worth it because it is like, it's like seeing the world differently. And, the and, and more mm-hmm. importantly, it feels like the world sees you differently and you have experienced uh, similar taunting and teasing and, and, and just uh, almost a marginalization of, mm-hmm. of, uh, as a result of this, you know, so I don't know.
1: Well, and mine was, mine was partnered with essentially a disability. I mean, I was legally Mm -hmm. blind without my glasses. Mm. And even with my glasses, I was still uh, struggling to function at a normal level. Um, I was starting to bump my car into things. I couldn't read, um, certain types of fonts and certain size fonts and at certain times of day. And so I was organizing my life around the good hours that Mm -hmm. I would have with my eyes. And, um, To go from that, from a life of that and from it becoming increasingly difficult to, you know, thinking of myself, um, I never used this label for myself until afterwards, but I was, I was operating with a disability. Mm -hmm. And then there was the additional how people perceive me with this business, which didn't present very much when I wore my glasses. But as soon as I took them off, you know, my eye would cross immediately. Mm -hmm. But my glasses were incredibly thick. I was always oh, you know, the woman with the glasses. Right. That was always, you know, oh, Joe, she's the woman with the glasses.
0: So do you wear corrective lenses at all anymore?
1: I have no correction whatsoever. Wow. Now. I have.
0: Wow, that's remarkable. See, I still I know, have to wear glasses.
1: Miraculous. Yeah. It, um, You know, and I don't have to worry when I travel. Um, Like when I went to Cuba, I had I had the glasses on my face. Right. If something had happened to those glasses, I would have just, you know, they would have just had to put an eye mask on me and I would have had to be le- led around till the end of my trip. I, uh, you know, and that was my biggest, I wasn't worried about any of the other things that, wow. you know, you might worry about going to a place like Cuba. That right. was, that was the it only was thing. It was only
0: what if my glasses break?
1: What if my glasses break? Cause I couldn't, it, my glasses were a thousand dollars. Cause oh my just, gosh. just the lenses alone, were like 600 and something dollars just to get wow. the lenses. And then you want some nice frames because you wear them on your face all day. Right. Right. So, you know, a thousand dollars for a pair of glasses. I didn't have the money. I'd rather spend the money going to Cuba than on a second pair of glasses to stay home, you know? Right. So I made that <laughs> <Right>. choice. <laughs> um, well played. But, but now, you know, no contact lenses, no glasses, no reading glasses, no nothing. No, I, but the weird thing is I can't wear sunglasses. Really? Why? Yeah. Something about, um, that I require a lot of contrast, um, to, to have the binocular vision. So once I, I put a, a tint in front of my eyes, it reduces the, the contrast and it's almost like I've gone blind. It's a really weird thing. Yeah. Wow. I can wear like very light, amber tinted glasses and this is something I might start experimenting with now that it's been over a year since my surgery, but you know, I'm, it makes sense. You've just had eye surgery, put on dark glasses and I put the dark glasses on and be like, where'd the world go? Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm still, I still, you know, I, I, sent you that picture of, of me as a child, that, that little girl is still inside me. Mm-hmm. That the little girl with the crossed eyes, whose grandmother thought she was ugly and whose mother you know, wouldn't take a lot of photos of her. Mm. I look at, you know, I look at how richly documented my parents' life was before I was born and then how few photographs there are with me in them. Mm. And I know that's because of my eyes. Yeah. And, and that hurts.
0: Yeah. How could it not? And then, you know, I
1: have all those photographs, I have all those photographs with the, the big glasses and I am miserable in those photographs. Like uh, you can tell that I don't feel well. I don't feel like I can engage with the world. I'm not like looking at the photographer in a natural way. And, um, and then, you know, I, I got into uh, an age where I could make decisions for myself and I started to wear contact lenses and sort of function with those. But, you know, I, I'm still, I'm still that little girl on the inside
0: is it subsiding you know so oh, as not, yeah. as we get further post surgery does that little girl but it, well,
1: yeah. yeah but it, i i don't want her to go away too quickly because i feel like it's it's it could be very fruitful with my mm-hmm. work i mm-hmm. think it's something that i'm still wanting to explore in my photography um and it's kind of funny i um i had to uh liquidate the contents of my parents' house this year, and um, the that's
0: an awful process.
1: It is an awful process. Yeah, it's and a horrible process. I uh, my parents were um, my parents really enjoyed acquiring things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: My mother was probably is probably a hoarder, um, and there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, redundancy let's just say, but I was very, (laughs) backup
0: copies of things. (laughs) I was very
1: overwhelmed. Um, and there was a lot of like, you you know, it was an, it it was very emotional. Right. I was very attached to my parents. Um, I was their only child together and and we were, you know, very close. Um, and so I, I had, I had to hire professionals and there was Mm -hmm. a lot of decision making to be done every day
0: because of the volume or because Because of the impact on you both. But yeah,
1: yeah. Um. you know, they came in and were starting to donate things, you know, just out the door stuff just started going out the door. And there was a box of eyeglasses that I was putting together that was ostensibly for the Lions Club. Mm-hmm. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, I need those glasses for a, for a project, mm-hmm. but they had already been donated. And I said, well, I need to get them back. And they looked at me like, you, you, you can't get those back. It's like, no, no, you have to tell me which lines club, where, where did you take the, which box? Cause I'm sure it's not too late. Right. You just have to let it go. I'm like, you don't work with artists, do you? Right. You, you don't, you don't understand. This is we don't. Like, we don't
0: let things go.
1: <laughs> you, you don't understand. This is, like, this is like, we
0: chew on things for years, whether we need to or not. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah, so I, you know, I kind of wish I had the, the glasses from like, you know, my father, myself, my father and my grandfather, which are all very are similarly very thick and mm-hmm, debilitating mm-hmm. kind of glasses. And so I kind of wish I had those for my work. But I, I uh, to get to your, to your question, you know, I, I feel like that little girl is going to make an appearance or two in the coming years through my photography. Somehow. Um, yeah. she, she certainly has in my poetry, but. I think to represent her or represent my experience of of maybe grieving her or letting her go or nurturing her or or something that that is going to appear in my my photography for sure.
0: Subscribe to In Between in your favorite podcast app. You can also get every episode of In Between as well as my other shows Process Driven and Iterations all in one feed by subscribing to Jeffrey Sidoris everything. If you're enjoying the show, I'd love it if you'd consider leaving a review or a rating on iTunes or sharing it on social media. Connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Jeffrey Sedoris, that's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S or on my website at jeffreysedoris.com. And just a reminder, this episode happened because Joe reached out and shared her story. If you've got an interesting story to tell, email me at talkback at I'd love to hear from you. And you can find Joe on Instagram at Joe Macby. That's J O M A C K B Y. Or by visiting her website at joemacby.com. As always, thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate you being here, and I'll talk to you on the next one.